Good evening, everybody. We're glad that you're here. Thank you for coming and joining us for this time of worship. It's a, it's a good time for us to be able to gather together. Let's join together in prayer. Oh Lord, what a wonderful gift and blessing it is when your people are able to gather together and worship you. When we come together in this time of worship, we're reminded every time we come here that you are here waiting for us. As you have promised, where two or more gathered together, there you will be also. And we give thanks, O oh God, that even if the only two in the room would be you and us, we still find ourselves in your presence. And so we come into this place tonight grateful. Grateful that we have a God who wants to be with us. Despite our failures, despite our sins, despite our, our problems that we bring to this place, we come here knowing that we are getting together with one who loves us with a never-ending love and who would choose to be nowhere else except near us. Help us, O oh Lord, to draw near to you as we gather in this place. Help us not to run away from you or to want to choose to, to be somewhere other than in the midst of your will. Help us, O oh God, to want to be one with you, to want to follow in your son's footsteps, to want to know where you are calling us to go and to try to become what you would have us become. This season of Lent gives us an opportunity to stop and look at ourselves with honest eyes, to see the weaknesses that are there, to see the poor choices that we have made, to, to see ourselves in truth and to realize that just as you see us in truth, we can see ourselves honestly, and yet you still choose to be near us. You choose to be with us. You choose to make your home in our souls, and you will make your home there if we will make room for you. Help us, O oh God, to make room for you as we come into this place tonight. Open our hearts and our minds to the words that you would have spoken to us and help us to learn from them. Help us to grow in them. Help us to discover something in this time of worship that we would not have discovered had we not been here. And help us to work to become as much like your son as we can. We will never reach his level of perfection, but we can certainly follow in his footsteps and try. So help us, Lord, to try. Because even the best of your servants fail sometimes. Even the best of your servants choose the wrong road at times. But you continue to call. You continue to love. You continue to believe in us. You continue to draw near. Let us draw near to you tonight, O oh God. For it is in your name we offer a prayer. Amen. From the first chapter of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, so he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Word of God. Well, for the next uh, five weeks, 
I'm going to be doing a series of messages on the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah may seem to be an odd choice for uh, this season, but I think it's a book that is tailor-made uh, for Lent. You know, Jesus uh, was uh, once told a group of people who were looking for a sign, he said, this is an evil age. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Well, hopefully by the conclusion of this series, we'll have a better understanding what Jesus meant by that. But suffice it to say right now that Jonah is a symbol of transformation. You know, our spiritual journeys will at some point involve darkness and suffering in spite of all of our best efforts to avoid these things. Uh, we will only realize how right God is, what God is trying to do, and how he does it when we emerge from the belly of the well. Jesus no doubt found the Jonah story inspiring because it described what was happening to him. Hopefully we'll find it as equally inspiring as we work our way through it in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, Jonah is many people's favorite biblical character. Children commonly love the story, and adults are uh, quite fascinated by it as well. Even people who have a minimal knowledge or interest in scriptures are familiar with the story of Jonah being swallowed by a big fish. Its influence can be seen in such diverse tales as Pinocchio and Moby Dick, now, I've had the privilege of learning about Jonah at two ends of the educational spectrum. When I was growing up, like many of you, I learned about Jonah in Sunday school or in vacation Bible school through the use of a high-tech device called the flannel graph. You know what a flannel graph is, Rebecca? You don't know what a flannel graph is? Golly, how many of y'all know what a flannel graph is? Okay, they're great, they're still great. And then when I went to seminary years later, I was required to learn the entire book of Jonah in Hebrew. In fact, my final test in seminary was to go to my Hebrew language professor's office and sit in his rocking chair while he asked me to read certain portions of Jonah in Hebrew and then translate and parse them. Well, the story of Jonah is just as interesting in Hebrew as it is in flannel graft, just a little more stressful. So we're going to be looking at the story of Jonah for the next few weeks. Now, I hope that you take the time to, to sit down and just read the entire book in its entirety. It's not long but it packs some powerful, powerful lessons. Who knows, maybe we'll learn some Hebrew too. Have you ever heard a story or a joke and you didn't get it for a while and later it hit you what it meant? I get it. Well, you know, when Jesus told the parables, he would use such imagery as common to people as seeds and soils and rocks and birds and flowers to make a spiritual point. And I can imagine that oftentimes these people would walk away wondering what in the world was Jesus talking about, only later to be blindsided by the realization, 
of what he was talking about. Well, Jonah is like that. It insinuates itself into our lives by comedy, by exaggeration, and while we are amused and while we are laughing and our defenses are down, it captures our imaginations and it leads us gently to the place where we can recover a spirituality with more depth. One of my favorite authors is Eugene Peterson. He says that the book of Jonah is a parable at the center of which is a prayer. Now, when he says it's a parable, he's not questioning its historicity, but he's suggesting because of its narrative quality, its narrative nature, it invites parabolic use. Just like the parables Jesus told, the book of Jonah provokes insights into our common lives. He says, parable and prayer are biblical tools for bringing a sharp personal awareness of truth to people whose spiritual perceptions have perhaps been dulled by living habitually in an overtly religious context. Well, that's talking about us, isn't it? When I look out here into our congregation, most of us are here on Sundays, if not every Sunday, Our lives are centered around our faith. We live in an overtly religious context, we could say. And the story of Jonah with its parable and its prayer is made to order for people like us, like Jesus' parables. It's subversive. It sneaks up on us. Now, there's two broad movements to Jonah. The first movement in the story shows Jonah disobedient. And the second movement shows him to be obedient. So first of all, Jonah is disobedient. When he receives his prophetic call to preach in Nineveh, where does he go? He heads in the other direction, to Tarshish. Tarshish is Gibraltar or Spain or someplace in that direction. The reader is supposed to associate it with the notion of a remote distance or a place in the opposite direction from Nineveh. Wherever it is, it is the jumping off place of the world. It's a place of adventure. Jonah's journey is initiated by the word of God. He does not simply ignore the word. He does not stay in Joppa. He does not hunker down into his old job, whatever it is. He goes. It's an act of obedience, sort of. But instead of going to Nineveh, he chooses a destination of his choice. Tarshish. Listen to what the scripture says again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. But Jonah rose up, he did what he was told, but to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So there's some irony here. It's an irony that's repeated time again in the lives of believers. Jonah actually uses the command of the Lord to avoid the presence of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Jonah rose, he obeyed. But as the scripture says, to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So lest we miss the irony, there's a repetition of the phrase in verse 3. 
So he went down to Joppa and he found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, why would anyone want to flee the presence of the Lord? And the presence of the Lord is supposed to be a wonderful place, isn't it? Don't we sing that chorus? Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. The presence of the Lord is a place of blessing. You know, that word presence in Hebrew is literally the word face. Panim. So we could translate that phrase this way. Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish from the face of the Lord. That's a powerful metaphor. It speaks of intimacy. What is the first thing a newborn infant begins to look at as their eyes gradually begin to focus? The face of their parents. And if a child is fortunate, that face begins to represent to them trust and affection. Our formative years as children are spent looking into those faces. The face is the source of our understanding that we were intimately conceived and loved and valued. Now think of the metaphor of God's face who loves and values us infinitely more than even our parents do. Why would anyone want to flee the face of God? There's a reason. A curious thing happens to us when we get a taste of God. It happened first in the Garden of Eden, and it keeps happening the experience of God is accompanied by a temptation to be like God. Wasn't that what the way the serpent tempted Adam and Eve? You're not going to die if you eat the fruit of the tree. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. We get a glimpse of the world in which God is in charge and think, well, maybe we have a chance at it. But the moment we began cultivating the possibility of acquiring that kind of power for ourselves, we most certainly are abandoning the personal presence of God. We're like a little child who is oblivious to his mother's pleas to do what she says. And finally, in desperation, she takes the child to the doctor for a hearing test. The results are positive. The hearing is just fine. The problem lies with the child's desire to listen and to obey. To obey means submitting one's will to another. To listen and obey takes us outside of ourselves and away from our own direction. We relinquish control over our own destiny when you let another person's word direct us. And in the case of Jonah, God has commanded Jonah to rise up and go to Nineveh. But Jonah doesn't do that, does he? In order to assert that he is his own master, he's the captain of his own destiny, he charts a course very different from the one that God gave him. He goes down to the travel agent in Joppa 
and he books passage to Tarshish. And he does this in resolute resistance to the word of God. He is fleeing the presence of God. He's disobeying God. And why Tarshish? Why does he want to go there? For one thing, it's just more exciting than Nineveh. Going to Nineveh to preach was not apparently not a coveted assignment for a Hebrew prophet. Tarshish was something else. Tarshish was exotic. Tarshish was an adventure. Tarshish had the appeal of the unknown. Tarshish tantalized Jonah's imagination. It's reported in 1 Kings chapter 10 that Solomon's fleet from Tarshish fetched gold and silver and ivory and monkeys and peacocks. Luann doesn't want me to say this. She won't let me have a monkey. (laughs) In the popular imagination, Tarshish was a distant paradise. Shangri-La. Who wouldn't want to go there? God told Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah rose all right, but he wanted to choose his own destination. I'm going to go but not to Nineveh, for heaven's sake, I'm going to Tarshish. Now, I have a little personal confession to make here, other than I want a monkey. I have to admit, there's been times in my life that I've succumbed to the temptation to chart my own destination. During my 30-plus years of pastoral ministry, I have to tell you, there's been times when I wanted to go to the travel agent in Joppa, and purchase a ticket to Tarshish. There's been times in my ministry when I became bored and depressed and unmotivated. There was a time when I got so discouraged I didn't think I could last one more week in ministry. So I did what other ministers sometimes do. I decided, well, I'm going to go to Tarshish. I read the travel brochures, otherwise known as job descriptions. I bought my ticket, otherwise known as activating my resume. I lined up for the ship to dock at Joppa to take me to Tarshish. I never did get there. I never got to Tarshish. You know what happened to change my mind? Nothing. Nothing happened on the exterior. None of my circumstances changed at all, but something inside of me changed. I realized any dissatisfaction I had was more to do with me than the place or the people. I realized I was engaging in exotic escapism. Folks, Tarshish is an illusion. It's an illusion. There is no perfect place. There is no perfect church. Now, I've had an interest in monastic spirituality for a number of years and think that uh, we have a lot to learn from our monastic brothers and sisters. St. Benedict wrote about a radical innovation he introduced to a community of monks to which he was the abbot. It was called the Vow of Stability. The vow of stability. You see, in St. Benedict's time, the 6th century, the monks were constantly on the move. 
it was not unusual for monks to leave one monastery and set out for another one, supposing themselves to be responding to some greater challenge, attempting a more austere and holy life. However, these quests, these wanderlusts were, were just a little bit suspect. Was it really God they were after? Or were they just avoiding God who was revealing himself to them where they were? Well, by Benedict's time, this restlessness disguised as spiritual searching was, was widespread. When the monastery in which they were living proved to be less than ideal, they typically went looking for a better one with a holier abbot, more righteous brothers and sisters. They were sure if they got into the right community, they could have the more, more effective ministry. And Benedict, he put a stop to it. He introduced the vow of stability. Stay where you are. You see, Benedict understood something very important. Being a follower of Jesus has to do with living out the implications of the Word of God in community, not sailing off to some exotic sea of religion searching for adventure and glamour and excitement. And what did I discover in all of this process? In reality, I was in many ways just like Jonah, trying to flee the presence of the Lord and what happened is that I gave up my Tarshish illusion and began to look God in the face. But let me ask you, have you ever found yourself fleeing from God's presence? Now we run from God in a lot of different ways and for all kinds of reasons. We might conclude, having heard God speak, that the word he delivers, the acts that he commends to us, the behavior that he restricts, the jobs and responsibilities he offers, that none of these have any appeal to us. Perhaps we are just immersed in our own pursuits, what we want to do, rather than what God wants us to do. Or perhaps we're just stubborn or ornery. We can even fool ourselves into believing that what we have chosen to do will be blessed by God, just like those monks. Or our fleeing from God can manifest itself in blaming our family, our church, or other people for our failure to be obedient to him. And so we run. We run in order to avoid the God who is revealing himself to us where we are. You know, in reality, we can flee from God, but we can't hide from him. Remember what the psalmist said, Psalm 139? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If, my, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the, the uttermost, remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. You see, you can run from God, but you can't hide from him. Sooner or later, if we truly want to grow in our relationship with God, we have to deal with God where we are. 
the scenery or the place doesn't make a whole lot of difference. What is crucial is that we listen to God and we respond in obedience to him where we are. Jonah failed to do that. He went his own way. Instead of going to Nineveh, where God told him to go, he went instead to Tarshish, where he wanted to go. So, the next few weeks, we're going to find out the results. We're going to find out the consequences of that decision. The question for us to ask ourselves this evening is this. Are we fleeing from the presence of God? Is he calling us to go to Nineveh? Would we rather go to Tarshish? Are we avoiding God? Are we trying to hide from him? Are we running away from God? Or are we prepared to look him in the face and obey him where we are? To be continued. God, we give thanks to you tonight for the word that was spoken over us. Lord, plant it in our hearts that we might think about it and allow it to cultivate something new in us, God. Lord, help us in the situations and the times, Lord, that we flee from your presence, God, when we choose our own way. Lord, when we think there's something better than what, than what you've provided for us, God. Lord, I pray that we would allow your spirit to lead our hearts, to lead our agendas, God, and that during this season of Lent, it would be a time of repentance and sacrifice and reflection on what you've done for us, God, and what you've called us to. Lord, I pray that as we leave this space, we would be reminded that intimacy with you is better than Tarshish. And ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.